Hey there, it's Chuck from Above the Basement, Boston Music and Conversation. We are proud to announce that Above the Basement has been nominated for two 2020 Boston Music Awards, Music Podcast of the Year and Live Music Stream of the Year. We would, of course, love your vote. The nominees this year are crazy good, and we are excited but not surprised that so many former and future guests are also nominated. So just like in the upcoming election next week, your vote matters. Support us and Boston Music by voting at bostonmusicawards.com forward slash vote. Voting ends November 1st at 11.59 p.m. Thank you for your support. Boston native Mark Cates is the founder of Fenway Recordings and manages several bands including MGMT, The Cribs, Mission of Burma, Doves, Swim Mountain, and Kunzite. He has been in the business since he was a kid, signing a who's who of bands over the years, including Beck, Jawbreaker, Elastica, Alabama 3. When working for Geffen, he brought them Sonic Youth and also worked with Nirvana, Teenage Fan Club, XTC, Hole, White Zombie. The list is crazy. Oh, yeah. And he also ran the Beastie Boys record label Grand Royal Records. We could go on and on, but suffice it to say he has topped himself by sitting with Ronnie and I for a conversation that runs the gamut. So, here is our conversation with Mark Cates, recorded at Woods Hill Table in Boston, Massachusetts. Mark, I'm glad we finally got to do this because, I don't know, I've asked you for a couple of years now. Yes. And then I asked you just like, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. And you said you just weren't, you couldn't do it. And all of a sudden you came out of the blue and you said, now you can do it. Yeah. What changed uh, your mind? Well, first of all, this is great. Like, this is a great environment. Yeah. It's safe. You know, yes. I'm not concerned about it. Good, good. Uh, for whatever reason, I must have been a little bit more paranoid at that time. I mean, everyone is dealing with this differently. And uh, we've been really keeping it very tight. Yeah, like, yeah. since no, March. I, so. I know, I'm not, make, there's no judgment here. Right, I'm just of curious. Well, anyway, he, you, he judges most people. I judge but, you, but I don't judge you, no, but, Right, exactly. But I think that maybe he changed his mind because he's, you were harassing him so much. No, I didn't harass. I was just, no, you it was know, fine. I did not harass. I wasn't as ready. You're describing it accurately. Okay, good. So, but here There's we are. Nothing to but here we are, and, and for everybody that can see us, we are more than six feet apart in, with masks on. Yes. Uh, although we are completely naked. <laughs> Which is which is strange. Emotionally naked. Oh, I like that. Thank you very much. Both physically and emotionally. Yes. I hear you already have plans after this. Yeah, a small neighborhood. <laughs> yes, it is a small neighborhood because yeah. I, I texted Dalton. So, oh, sure. Who's been a guest on here and is a good friend. He lives right down the street. And I said, oh, Mark Cates is coming tonight. Give me some good stories. What do you, you know? And then he's like, oh, there's so many. He's like, and I know he's coming because we're actually going out to dinner afterwards. I'm like, oh, look at that. So I invited him to come sit with us. I'm like, I'll put up another mic and we can all have a chat. Why don't you come? He's like, no, no, no. This is Mark's night, which means that he's just chickening out. That's what he did because it's not your night. It's my night. You're just here to enjoy it. What I'm trying to remember is if I discovered you guys because you interviewed Dalton or I'd already met you and that was the first time I noticed. But anyway. It had to be because of Dalton's episode. That was 2017 probably. I'm pretty pretty sure because I I think I met you at Boston Calling. Okay. Um, That's right. You said that. And then I've run into you since then at Boston Calling and then also at the Rock and Roll Rumble, where I actually did a quick little interview with you, actually. Right. Which that I haven't That was really yet. interesting, actually, because I noticed that you guys would talk to Angela a lot, and, and I actually didn't even remember that. But I used to come back here from L.A. to help judge the finals. Hmm. Uh, yeah. as, I don't know what you guys want to talk about, but BCN is a big part of what ultimately propelled me into the music business. So it was really an enjoyable annual trip. I used to like coming back here for any reason, but there were some really good years. And then I moved back here and I even had artists that were in it. And at some point I stopped paying attention. I stopped going. They stopped asking me to judge. And then I think it was last year, Angel hit me up. It was one of those things where when the night came around, I wasn't very excited about it, but I had, it was great. It was a great experience. I reconnected with people I knew. I think Once is a great home for it. Yeah. Because, like, the first Rumble was a major event in my life. Yeah, you were very, um, when I interviewed you, you were very emotional about it, about how important a moment that was for you, the Rumble was. 
Maybe you want to tell that story again? Why sure, was, I'd, be, yeah. I'd be happy to. So um, I started answering the listener line at WBCM when I was 16. Huh. Uh, that was in 1977 when they were still in the Peru. And you grew up in Lexington, right? I did. Many routes, different routes in this area. The main DJ I answered phones for was a woman named Tracy Roach who went to Brown and really great DJ, really nice person. One day she's like, okay, you need to go to this show tonight. It's at a place called The Rat. It's in Kenmore Square. I was aware of The Rat. I had not been there. Um, I think I was legally underage, but I had a fake ID. You'll be on the guest list. Make sure you stay for the whole night because there's going to be a little surprise. So I go. I was on the guest list, so I didn't have to even use my fake ID. And I happened to come of age at a time where the drinking age kept changing. Went from 18 to 20 to 21. As I It was a very different world where things like that weren't really as regulated. Right. The bill that night was The Neighborhoods, Thrills, and Unnatural Acts. Really three of the best bands from that era on one bill in one rumble. And seeing The Neighborhoods, seeing David Minahan in particular, just blew my mind. I just couldn't believe there was anything that great in Boston. (laughs) I thought all the bands were great. And then there was a surprise set by a band I had seen maybe the previous three nights at the Cape Cod Coliseum, which was Jay Giles. And if you can imagine Jay Giles at The Rat, it's, Life-changing. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's funny because you do this for a while and you actually, like, you can pinpoint certain nights that really were life-changing over the thousands that you experience if you are active. But, yeah, I, I think for me it was like shows were not at the Rat. They were at the Garden or the Music Hall or the Orpheum. 79, so I was a – it would have been in the summer, so I would have just finished my freshman year of college. So mm-hmm. I was just getting into what would become – my whole life, yeah. uh, music-wise. Huh. You know, Love wow. Stinks is the first album I ever bought. Really? As a matter of fact, yes. You're well, a young man. <laughs> That's all <laughs> I can say. You know I'm what young, I think I, is... I'm, yeah, I'm the second youngest in the room, probably. But. You know what I find very uh, very interested in? You said it was life-changing at that time. Certainly, that's a, a formative time of life at 16, 17, 18, and it's transformative. But what I'm always interested in is the people that launch into that career or or get inspired at that time, the feeling you had at that moment when you look back, I'm sure was amazing. But I always wonder about the path of 30, 40 years after that. And how did that influence the fame of the Jay Giles band? What happened with the neighborhoods? If you saw Aerosmith in, in, in that small venue, I'm always interested in how the path actually affects the way we look back. I always think it's interesting to think about the the power of nostalgia and how amazing these Boston bands became later. It's a very interesting question, and really it makes me think that my biggest takeaway from that night was not Jay Giles at all. It was the neighborhoods, because there was this rock star in my midst. And David's, uh, haven't really been super in touch lately, but I mean, he's never really been out of my life. Yeah. (laughs) And really what happened was, I became aware of this whole culture that was already, I mean, that was, 79 was pretty early for the era that, which, you know, things happened quickly after that. But in 79, MBR might have still been WTBS. Um, And so I was diving into Subway News, and I was already reading the Phoenix and the Real Paper, which I think was still there around then. And my dad was a periodical distributor, so I always had a lot of print media in my life. (laughs) But... All of it at once, if you can imagine that, with no internet. So, you know, you have to find these radio stations. You have to hear about them. You have to hear about these gigs. Also, I was spending, I was at George Washington. So some of this was going on there as well. Really interesting. There's a very recent documentary about Go-Go that for the first time ever, I realized I was in D.C. when both Go-Go and D.C. Hardcore became major musical movements, like within about a year. Really crazy. And... So, yeah, looking back now, first of all, I wasn't at BCN because that was going to be my career. I was there because it was cooler to hang out at the station than to listen. And the <laughs> station was amazing. I mean, I, I can't believe I was there once at the Prue. I can't believe when I met Oedipus, he had orange spiked hair and was doing a punk show at 4 a.m. I can't believe I met Tommy Hodges. I listened to, you know, I, I did my preparation as well. I listened to the Laquadara episode, which was great, and talk about life changing. Um, but, but yeah, I first I was into the radio station. I was a fan of music. I got into going to shows. I got into hanging out. BCN somewhat unwittingly gave me amazing access. We would show up at Spit with a stack of 
bumper stickers, be let in for free, and then throw the bumper stickers away, uh, and hang out after <laughs> and meet bands. And we were just kind of fearless and didn't know any better. At a certain point when I was in college, that turned into maybe I should do this for a living because huh. I went to George Washington. I interned for Paul Songus. I thought I was going to go into politics. I'm really glad I figured that out like my sophomore year <laughs> and segued from political science to American studies. And then my junior year, I got on the radio station. My senior year, I was music director. That's when I had this epiphanal moment where this is probably what I should pursue because this is when I'm consuming my time and energy and mental space with more than anything else. But that night will always really stand. It's just funny to talk about one show, but think about it. That is such a um, important part of Boston rock history of not like the bands that went on to make it big, but the bands that inspired other bands to do what they did, like Mission of Burma. That whole time with the DMZ and and the Real Kids and and the Rat and you know it, I always call the Rat this it's like the CBGBs of uh, of Boston and you know it's it's such an amazing amazingly inventive and new time for for Boston rock and and, and music and you right in the middle of it. Yeah, and am I know, over, am I overstating it? No, no, no. You're actually, if anything, understating it. Like, uh, okay. This is the thing. Like this is why I had a career because I was so motivated by what was going on in Boston and. I eventually channeled that into getting Ace of Hearts Records and Mission of Burma to split a hundred dollar a week salary, and that was my first real job. To split a hundred dollar per week. Yeah, I think Rick took it over after not that long, but because uh, <laughs> so, I don't want to, you know, whatever. At the time, well, first of all, this was so. This was fall of 1982. Yeah. Uh, right around the end of the year, I managed to beat everybody down. It turned out Burma was only going to exist for another few months uh, because of tinnitus and all that. But I was able to have a role in their whole. We did a quick farewell tour uh, to a few other cities. and um, But it's bands like La Peste that will never get their due that were incredible. And even Human Sexual Response, who yeah. didn't really get well enough known away from here. Mm. Fortunately, they reuni reunite every once in a while. And it's, it's again, equal parts social and music. Huh. Um, what a great name. Yeah. Human Sexual Response, three-piece band with four lead singers. Truly kind of epitomized the art school scene here huh. and yet the music was incredible um yeah I don't, I, i'm sure that if i were from anywhere and i had had an experience parallel to this i would feel somewhat the same way but i have to tell you that boston at that time was a really exciting place and it was a small world it was a world that i was able to penetrate very quickly generally over those summers uh, more the following two summers but yeah, I mean, I saw, well, this is great. The first time I saw Mission of Burma was exactly a year later. It was actually July 4th, 1980. Why am I so sure? Because that was the one night I was not on the guest list for the Rumble because <laughs> it was the finals. And my fake ID didn't work. Ah, <laughs> I, think was I was going to ask about your fake yeah, ID. Whatever yeah. it was, I wasn't on the list. I didn't get in. Mission of Burma playing at Jasper. Well, wait, you were older Rumble. then. So were you 20? But, but like yeah. I said, they kept raising the age. So they followed I you. was That's 19 right. and it was 20, I'm pretty sure, in 1980. They kept on, every yeah. year they kept on upping Exactly. Uh, that was the year that Pastiche won, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, and so I go to see Mission of Burma at Jasper's in Somerville to a very small gathering. And they blow my mind. And I was involved with the Anderson for President campaign, huh. uh, which was another insane college music business experience that ultimately led to places. But at the time, was more just about... I guess merging my interests. Um, so Pol I had this idea politics do, and music. Yeah, yeah, I had this idea to do this Anderson benefit, but it was also a way that I could talk to my new heroes, like th those guys and Rick Hart and David Minahan. And it never actually happened, but it was a, it was a door opener. So yeah, I mean, this is what's funny. Like I'm, I'll talk to you guys about whatever you want, but this is stuff that is so primal to me. It's so deep and important yeah. i love talking about it well so tell me about that primal experience in i don't know how many nights a week over a course of a few years you were hearing you were listening to music or going to see live shows but let's say what three four yeah it would depend yeah. it would depend especially when i was in dc there just wasn't as much going on and i was in school more or less yeah um but boston if i was here there was very little that would keep me home period right. and the station gave me access so that, again, it's a mentality, a very entitled and unrealistic mentality that I developed very early where if it was happening, I would probably get there. There's a thing that um, I remember feeling on many levels at many times, including with Nirvana, where 
okay, this sounds really good. This sounds amazing. They're rocking it. These guys are incredible. But, like, they're not playing Boston Garden, so it can't really be that big or that great. And then at a certain point, you realize that's completely untrue, and it's more the opposite. It's more like if they are that great and they were given a bigger platform, they could probably more than fill the shoes. It's interesting because, you know, there's an old school tradition about, and I'm a non-musician, so I, it's easy for me to say this, where like, it's all about how good a player you are. And punk was really the opposite of that. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's ultimately what inspired me. And yet you do see amazing musicians in every realm of music. Right. It is a factor. It's not more important than the song though. And yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? Prettiest Girl stands up, Academy Fight Song stands up. Um, Better Off Dead by Lopez stands stands up, in my opinion. And the way I really kind of focus this topic is that my favorite year in music has always been 1981, and I just don't think it's ever going to change. I mean, it's huh. definitely not at this point. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's like, well, that was my senior year of college. I'm like, yeah, and I saw The Clash at Bonds, which is the greatest show I ever saw, which I do not expect to be topped. The Clash? Um, the Clash this is a whole other podcast, but... Huh. Uh, they booked a week of shows at this place in New York called Bonds International Casino. The fire marshals busted it the first night, so they had to basically turn it into three weeks of shows. And I'll do this quickly, but I mean, it's the greatest show I ever saw, so I could, again, talk about it forever. We drive down, and the show doesn't happen. Uh, we go to see the monochrome set at the Peppermint Lounge. My car gets broken into, my friend's suitcase gets stolen, whatever. New York City, 1981. So <laughs> parking the street in Times Square, it's probably gonna happen. Um, Best year of music of your life. It's my favorite year of music <laughs> ever. Yeah. Well, that didn't exactly stop us because the following week we drove back and the show did happen. And because it was the greatest show that I had ever seen, I drove back the following week and caught the last two shows. And again, in Times Square in 1981, huh. buy a scalp ticket. It gets rejected. You sell it to another scalper, buy another scalp ticket, get in. And <laughs> what was going on, the class were really, really big here. They were getting played on BCN, like the biggest artists of the time. So there was a lot, there was like someone at the time said 20% of the audience of those shows every night was from Boston. And these were the only shows they played in the United States mm. on San Sandinista. So yeah, and like maybe the night before, see, I'm, I'm gonna get my years confused and that's not gonna be productive, but uh, I believe the jam played the channel like the night before we went down and didn't see the show, which was the most ridiculous show I ever saw there, both in terms of, I think, performance and energy, but also there were probably 3,000 people in there. So it, it was like you say, it was like multiple nights a week and some of them were unimaginable. And it went on for a while. It went on well past 81. But I think for me, I go back to those records and they still sound incredible. And mm -hmm. Movement by New Order, Dare by the Human League, Juju, Susan the Banshees, mostly English stuff, Talking Heads. Uh, by that point was Remain in Light, uh, another just mind-blowing live show. But I know we're here to talk about Boston, so I should. What you know, it's so interesting. Like some of these bands, like Mission to Burma, that that I've heard like influenced the Pixies and influenced like all these other bands that made it big. All these bands were so good. Like, what is it? Something about about Boston? About maybe it's so maybe it's a little insular compared to New York or other towns that maybe these bands didn't break out, or is it just? the nature of the beast there's a different story for everyone and i can't speak for any of them personally i do think there were factors though i think that new york a and r people took boston for granted which is ironic if you consider that seymour stein signed dmz so if he had actually kept coming up here that might have changed but i mean the neighborhoods my understanding is it could have happened for them it's something I've, I mean, Rick Hart hired me. That was, like I was saying, that became my job. So it's something I've talked to him about. That was at uh, Ace of Hearts? Ace of Hearts yeah, Records. Yeah. Mission of Burma's label and the Neats label. I mean, all the, another amazing band. REM mm. took the Neats on tour. That should have been enough to get somebody's attention. But I don't know. I mean, from our standpoint, we were just trying, from Rick's standpoint, he had them signed. He wasn't interested in moving them along. The one time that happened was with the Del Fuegos, who... I don't think we're quite signed yet and we're scooped up by Slash. That was another fairly dramatic episode. But I think it was a combination of ignorance, taking it for granted. And also, if you were a New York-based Anarch person at that time, there was a hell of a lot going on in New York. Right. And there were these other places. But if you think about it, if you think about Minneapolis or Athens, all these artists had to develop on independent labels. This is all well pre-internet. There's a, there's a double-edged sword of internet, oh, I, I think, agree. Because it's amazing when you think about it. A lot of it must be luck. And, and like people didn't discover, people didn't take off. Maybe the neighborhoods 
would have taken off. Well, I even think about a the, later time. The I don't remains. Know. They say the remains are like some one of the greatest bands ever, and I, you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who would even know who they are unless you were unless you're from Boston and you're you know you know that music. A lot of people would never have heard of them, and they have an amazing history and and following of people who know the music. Totally, but. To be fair, not only did they get signed, they got to go on tour with the Beatles. So. That, that is true. But <laughs> but there was no music business then. There was no media continuity with what was... I mean, it was all... This is what's most interesting to me in a way when I look back at, like, not just my timeline, but um, if you guys have a chance and you are anywhere remotely near it, we kind of stumbled on it. But there's a really amazing museum at the Woodstock site, which is now... There's a, there's a shed there now. So if you look at what these guys were doing, <laughs> having to change their venue twice... You know, it's 1969. There's no, there's no organization. There's no, I mean, they had to create it. And yeah. I'm really fascinated with that. And we're lucky in Boston that you had this whole thing going on with the Tea Party, BCN, and the Phoenix, or the Boston After Dark. And obviously, Don Law was in the middle of it. But we were very early, even globally, in, in all of that happening. And when I think about, like, 81, the jam came over, played Boston and New York. That was it. That was not unusual. Some of it was distance. Some of it was, you know, certainly the West Coast had plenty to offer for an English band. But, yeah, we were lucky. You, you at some point, took what you learned, basically, and took it to the next level. Right. So I stopped working at Ace of Hearts early in 1985. And <laughs> my next job was being a tour guide at the Tea Party, which is pretty hilarious. <laughs> which I enjoyed, actually. It was cool. That, that's good for someone who wants to be a politician. That's, you know. Right, although I'd already, well, <laughs> fortunately it turned out to be between record company jobs. And okay. uh, my old friend Karen Glauber, who's the president of Hits Magazine and was a fellow Rumble judge during the flying in for the finals era, um, told me that there was a new label, there was an Australian label called Big Time opening up in LA and that there was a job open and I should try and get it. Conveniently, the owner of the label was coming here actually to sign Alex Chilton and I had an interview with him and that went well and ironically there were three of us from the same scene who ended up working there um, the others were Jeffrey Weiss and Jim Barber who both who ran WHRB they were maybe a year behind me whatever it was it seemed like a long time then it doesn't seem like long now but <laughs> and that got me to LA and um, the work I did a big time most notably I guess with it was amazing to work with Alex and know him at all and just be around him. But the bigger artists were Love and Rockets and the Hoodoo Gurus. And the Geffen A&R people noticed that there were things happening with those records that weren't happening with some of their signings and huh. didn't feel like there was anybody who could interpret what wasn't even yet at that point called alternative music. And that led to my being hired there. And that's when I suppose I really took it to another level because yeah. I had this incredible platform. The company was small when I got there. And I started in August of 87, but it was only the previous December in the LA Times annual report card of record labels where they actually printed the joke, what's the difference between Geffen and the Titanic? The Titanic had a band. And it was, of all things, the White Snake comeback album that probably, I, I'm not sure that my initial salary really <laughs> affected the bottom line, period, but I felt like that things were loosening up there because they had, this album had sold four million copies and uh, Permanent Vacation came out, uh, well, Appetite for Destruction came out the week before I started, but that actually took a year to break. Um, really? Oh, yeah. That I mean, was when I started, 87. 87 Appetite? is when it came out. 88 is when Sweet Child of Mine became a hit. That's right. Okay. Um, yeah, 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 I mean, that was a... Yeah, I was of, a, yeah, I was a senior in high school. One I, of, I remember it well. One of the great experiences I was lucky enough to have, I was coming east for CMJ, Guns N' Roses were playing The Paradise. The same night, Aerosmith were playing in Maine, and the Boston promotion person, Karen Durkot, who was incredible and I loved working with, asked if I could come to cover the Guns N' Roses show. And I was like, sure, that'll be cool. It, I, it was one of those moments where I'm like, wow. First of all, everyone I know in Boston wants to go to the show, and I'm not really a hard rock guy, and neither are some of them, but they all have to be there. People like Rick Hart and Richie Parsons and God knows who else. I, I had to get all these people in, and it was, you know, from what I remember, it was pretty unbelievable. <laughs> the next day, go to CMJ. They play at the CB's record store, which is kind of a legendary performance. Um, but if you think about it, in October of 1987, they were headlining the Paradise. They did sell it out, but they weren't headlining the Garden. Uh, so when you get to 
see a record get really big, especially if it takes a long time, you learn a lot and you learn to read signs. And I was lucky enough to experience it both indirectly and then ultimately directly and then be able to actually pass on or identify things. And that's, when you say the next level, that really is the next level. Like that's, I went from us like having to sneak albums in the back door of the Harvard Coop because the buyer there was friendly to us. Um, Dennis McDonald and, you know, go deliver records to Rounder, who are one of our distributors, mm. to actually dealing with things at a very high level. I think that the most important things that I learned were being comfortable talking to musicians. And some of it was the Burma guys or Minahan, and some of it was like being backstage at uh, a Metro, as it was called then, later to become Avalon show, and meeting the guys in Squeeze or, you know, being at BCN when people come in. Yeah, you didn't learn it overnight. No, and... And this and, started when you were 16. Right, and you don't... You also don't... Well, and I wasn't even focused on it for a long time, but <laughs> I do believe that talking to musicians and not being intimidated was incredibly valuable. And um, one of the things I did at GW, at the radio station, WRGW, I should say, which I've gotten involved as an alumnus recently in supporting and trying to help them. Interviews were a way to get free tickets. And I got some great interviews in the process of getting free tickets, but I also learned how to talk to artists, and or so I thought. I mean, I, you know, I I have to find this Black Flag interview um, <laughs> from the first time they played the 930 Club with Henry Rollins, who was from Washington as the singer, and hear what that sounds like. But uh, as a manager, I like to say the job is 90, at least 95% psychology, and that's a little different than marketing and promotion and even A&R. Um, though there's a lot of parallels between A&R and management, especially Gavin, the A&R person was like the manager inside the building and we didn't have product managers. Um, so you really got involved in every aspect of it. I want to skip ahead a little bit because I know that we did a, you know, sometimes we'll do like a, what happened to the record industry? And I don't want to do that, but I do want to get into right now. I feel like the whole landscape has, has changed. And I'm not sure that anybody knows what to do, whether it be manager or artist or, or what, especially since there's no live music. I mean, it's starting to come back a little bit, but if we still keep on where we are right now. So like, I'm, you know, there, there was an article, uh, you said in an interview, that it all comes down, there's never been more opportunities if you can pay attention and maximize it. And I think this was back in like 2014 or 17, maybe. And we're in a whole different world right now. And it took less than a year to, to do that. As a manager and as someone who's been in music right now, how do you see the landscape? And how do you start to even navigate where to move forward from here? Is it a wait and see right now? Or are you moving forward in something? Or Everyone's experience is totally unique, both personally and professionally right now. I'm lucky in that I have a small roster that is not exactly a bunch of road warriors. So in March, it was hectic because when everything started to fall apart, MGMT's truck was on its way to Mexico. They were a little slower to cancel things or postpone them than other places. I was in dialogue with other managers um, of other artists on these festivals who seemed to want to know what we were doing. In the end, uh, obviously, those shows didn't happen then, didn't happen last month when they were initially postponed. Now they're supposed to happen in May and July. And... The further out we get from the way things used to be, the harder it is to imagine anything happening on any real level, even all of next year. That's kind of the mentality right now. So I've had a few really interesting experiences when it comes to releasing music. With MGMT, they had a B-side coming out from a 12-inch that we had released the A-side for in November, and we were waiting until the vinyl would get delivered. The vinyl got delayed, and I just remember we were going to first released this song on March 17th and it didn't feel good on March 16th. But by March 20th, it felt okay and we put it out. And this is a seven minute instrumental B-side that got a lot of attention that it probably wouldn't have under normal circumstances That's because the really landscape was yeah, completely unpredictable. I mean, it got playlisting, it got reviewed as a single. It was very much not a single in traditional terms. I work with two incredible English artists, Doves and the Cribs, both of whom had to make decisions initially based on when they thought they could play in the UK where they have a lot of value. The Doves album, they hadn't released an album in 11 years. There was really no telling what would happen. However, in part due to a lot of really smart moves in the physical marketplace, and I'm not involved with them other than in North America, so my role in this was more or less non-existent, but their album debuted at number one in both the UK and Ireland. That was a huge statement, a really big moment. They were lucky that there weren't major superstar releases that week or even the week before. It's still 
number one is number one. <laughs> you can't do better than that. The Cribs wanted to wait. They tend to play live when their album comes out. Theoretically, they may be playing in November in a very limited capacity in the UK. But announcing a single in July, having enough time to actually set it up properly, that's the thing that no one may be talking about right now that's really good, is that you can actually just wait until you're ready. I think waiting for the sake of waiting is a mistake. And, and again, that was a mentality that probably existed well into the summer that doesn't necessarily make sense now. So every situation is different. Is there anything that's slowing down that is almost reminiscent of the way it was a long time ago? You just mentioned something that I wonder about that in the taking your time, the releasing, the actual physical artifact. Well, I suppose you had to do all that back then, whereas now, if you have a following, you just have to release it. And exactly. Yeah, and you know, we had a lot of frustrations with the Doves release here, and at a certain point, I was talking to Glenn Mendelger, I was like, maybe the album actually needs to be out for mm -hmm. us to reach this audience, because if you're talking about an artist that last released an album in 2009, streaming was not even really a conversation then, let alone being ubiquitous. There's something to be said for getting everything together and picking the date then and doing it. And yeah, under normal circumstances, you couldn't really do that because you would have had to have planned a tour and base everything around that. In the old days, it was more like manufacturing and all kinds of like land-based activities had to occur. Booking the tour was probably a crapshoot in a way because if you go back far enough, it wasn't like it is now where there's seven artists trying to play every venue in the same night. And one of the big topics at this exact moment is, well, let's say things do come back next September. Unless you can sell tickets literally without any concern about anything, you probably don't want to be out in September because everybody else is going to be. What do you think about drive-ins? I just don't think it's a real model. I do believe that there's a correction going on that will last possibly forever and that there was a lot of inflated money in the live music business. However, I don't think that's the answer. I mean, I think anyone who can make it work, more power to them. Personally, I expected to be suffering a lot more for not being able to go to gigs or sporting events. It hasn't been an issue for me at all. I guess I have a lot of years stored up. I have a lot of amazing experiences to draw on. I don't know how else to put it, but I'm really lucky that, because I have these friends that go to see cover bands yeah. in those environments, and they have a need that I don't have, but I suppose if I were just a consumer, that would make more sense. You know, you also said, you know, I read a bunch of articles about you, and you're, you're very famous. <laughs> you said the Back great labels were built musically and specifically. You also said, you know, it's all about the songs. So when you started Fenway Recordings, was that out of something that you felt, I don't even mean to bash any of the labels, but was that out of something you felt was missing? Was that just something you wanted to do yourself? Or did you have your own, little, did you have your own mission that you wanted to uh, push forward here in Boston? It's a combination, I suppose. I moved back here for lifestyle reasons. I did not want my son to grow up in L.A. Where did he move at the first possible moment after graduating from NYU this year? L.A.? L.A. He's, oh, an, yeah, act, he's an actor and writer. It's kind of the right place. Right, for him. Um, <laughs> but no, I thought I had learned how to release albums on an independent label. But what I had really learned how to do in Los Angeles was spend other people's money. So I had way too much knowledge and experience and connections and not enough, humility is not even the right word. It's like, I always think about John Janik who started his label five years before I did with no connections, no money. He was in Florida in his garage. <clears throat> Easy to say, but he had a better chance of succeeding because he could only do what was possible. And what was possible for me, most of it was irrelevant. And what I like to say now is most of what I've learned in all these years is irrelevant. But fortunately, most of whom I know probably is relevant. So hmm. yeah, I set up this label. It was not successful. It's funny because I've been looking back at things and just last night I was I was reading all music reviews of some of the records that we put out and you would think that, uh, I don't know, more people notice them is all I can say. You know, I waited 18 years for Clint Conley to write songs again and jumped on the opportunity to work with him in Consonant, which was a great band who made two great records and kind of an indie all-star band with Chris Broca and Winston Brayman and Chris Cadane and Bob Weston producing. And it just made sense to me. But the world was changing, and if I really thought about it, it happened while I was at Grand Royal, where an independent label that people paid attention to beyond the individual artists, well, that concept wasn't necessarily built to last. And mm. it started to happen to us there. I think that some of the landmark US independent rock labels have managed to make adjustments along the way and not really lose their statue. And labels like Sub Pop and Matador and Merge and and all the great British independent labels, I feel the same way about. And I think that must be what I was talking about when I 
talked about the great labels. But yeah, I spent a few years spending way too much money on the wrong things. Fortunately, got out, became a manager. Uh, it all happened. See, again, I became a manager in one night at South by Southwest, even though I was managing Mission of Burma. And when I was still living in Boston, before I moved to LA, I managed Birdsongs in the Mesozoic because I wanted to continue to work with Roger Miller after Mission of Burma, which was hilarious because they could easily play an art museum, a rock club, you know, some kind of DIY space. Uh, so it was really an interesting exercise, and I booked a tour for them somehow. But I was really lucky in kind of the prime years in L.A. to be the A&R counterpart for my good friend John Silva, who's one of the most successful rock managers of all time, known for Nirvana, Foo Fighters, Sonic Youth. Uh, he manages Nora Jones now. He manages St. Vincent, Queens of the Stone mm. Age. But mm. I can talk about John for an entire podcast. Uh, who has roots in this area, and we did originally bond on being Red Sox fans and... Um, remain among the best of friends to this day. Uh, but to me, he was the manager and I was the NR guy, and that worked really well for a long time hmm. at both Geffen and Grand Royal, uh, but particularly at Geffen. Beck, I should mention, who yeah. he managed and I signed. Um, That's right, you signed Beck. But um, I heard of him. So yeah, I, I'm glad I made the segue. I was a reluctant entrepreneur, uh, not just reluctant manager. And also, you know, I did move here from Los Angeles in 2001, which did not make any sense on paper. You don't leave L.A. if you're in the entertainment business. And you definitely don't leave L.A. and move to Boston yeah. if you're in the record business. I don't think moving here was among my mistakes. It was kind of everything else I was doing. But fortunately, management's worked out well. And uh, I've had amazing A&R experiences as a manager when I'm allowed to, which is not that often. And, you know, it's not your job. And that's sort of something that you do if people want it. And, you know, the one legacy, I suppose, from the time of the label here are the nights that we do called the Fenway Recording Sessions, which who knows when they'll return. DJ Carbo. Uh, yes, I do have a DJ alter ego that I'm very proud of. And um, <laughs> that even goes back. Well, that goes back originally to college radio. And then I picked it up again in L.A. where I was DJing on a pirate radio station called KBLT, which there's a book about. You even did the Viper Room, didn't you? I did. We had a club for two years called Atmosphere. I was the resident DJ. This was the actual original Viper Room owned by Johnny Depp, not uh, the version of it that exists now, where they were flying over mostly the biggest drum and bass DJs. This was in, sorry, 98, 99, 2000, I think. Wild. And just a wild... I basically had this musical midlife crisis where I was an A&R person at Geffen with every resource possible on earth, having a hard time finding things I wanted to sign. Rock music had gotten boring to me, with exceptions. Um, it was in that period I signed Jawbreaker, which there's a whole documentary about that. Uh, not me signing them, but their, their career and the mm -hmm. whole Geffen thing was extremely controversial to their fan base. I signed Elastica, a uh, really incredible English band. and. Probably the one that actually sent me most in that direction was a man called Alabama 3, who became known for the theme to The Sopranos, which happened much later than huh. was the record we made that had Woke Up This Morning on it. I'd go to London. I would, I would get to go there a lot. And um, there was a music I was hearing everywhere I went that I couldn't identify, and it turned out it was drum and bass. Uh, anyway, so we start these nights in 2003, I believe. We've, we have curated 450 shows. We started at the front room of the Paradise, Moved to Great Scott when that was first becoming an indie venue. Had a lot to do with putting it on the map. Then had to leave because Bowery took over and we were affiliated with Don Law. They opened Brighton Music Hall. For a while we were doing shows at both places actually. And uh, that's where mostly where we've been ever since. But I love to DJ many nights. Again, kind of like the Rumble, the night comes around, I'm really not that excited about it. And inevitably, the show that night will blow me away. And it may not even even been something I've thought about that much since the time that I decided to attach us to it. Huh. So it's a, kind of a convoluted thing, but something that huh. I'm really proud of. Can you kind of humor me and tell me, obviously, Beck is a is an international superstar. How did that happen? Like, tell me the story. It's a good story and, and not a simple one. So the first time I heard Loser was in Tony Berg's office. He's a really well-known producer. He was also an A&R person at Geffen. In fact, he wanted to sign back initially, and I ended up being brought in to help get it done. Yeah. Um, so we both say that we signed him, and it's, it's fair enough, to be honest. Um, yeah, it was this new Cosign. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, except have you ever heard that? <laughs> when no. When it comes to signing an artist, exactly. Um, Chris right. Doritas had brought in the Bonglo 12-inch of Loser, and it was like, wow, like this is cool. Like This is, you know, who is yeah, this Yeah, like, guy? what is this? Yeah. So we are in fall of 1993. My job was crazy because I had, I was a and like 12 artists. I had two assistants. There was a lot going on. 
Beck had been making music for a while, had been putting out these homemade cassettes, and literally overnight went from no one knowing who he was to A&R people like stalking him outside his house. You know, uh, as a Patriots fan, one of the things I've learned is half of it is just not being stupid. Because <laughs> I believe that's, I believe some of their competitors suffer from being stupid uh, on some level. I know that sounds ridiculous. and it's, I agree. We've actually really followed the team and watched the games and try to tap into what Belichick's doing. It's a big thing to overcome, not being stupid. So yeah, I, I did not show up at his house unannounced. However, thus stupid. Right. Well, yeah. Well, all I can say is we got him, and people who did things like that didn't. And how'd um, you do it? Or how, how did it happen? I mean, it was, it was many months of going to shows and talking to him. Now, he did not have a manager. And the Bongload guys had made a production deal with him, and that complicated it. And that's, I'll just leave it at that complicated it. Yeah. So at a certain point, Eddie Rosenblatt asked me to get involved. I think I had seen him already. I don't know if I had met him, but I started going to his gigs, and he was playing a lot, and he was playing at places like Mr. T's, which was a bowling alley in Highland Park that I believe still exists. Also a club called The Smell downtown that his mother owned that I think also may still exist. You know, my innovative idea was to talk to him <laughs> and to just try to get to know him and just try to be friendly. I mean, honestly, yeah. my biggest kind of career axiom is being nice to people really gets you far. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's it's worked well for me. You can't always yeah. be nice to people. People definitely aren't always nice back. But yeah. um, and don't I mean, and don't be stupid. Well, right, yeah. yeah, exactly. Don't be stupid, and also listen to the artists. Like hear what they're saying. You know, it's it's. I can't say that to myself enough, in a way, because as a manager, there's a little more at stake in terms of your livelihood. There were two things I remember that I three things I'm going to say that I remember being important. One of them was Tony found a vintage Martin guitar and wanted to give it to him and sort of proposed this fairly highfalutin recording concept. I don't know how much of an impact that had, but that was significant. We wanted him to meet David Geffen. That was awkward. Um, <laughs> well, David's like, you know, well, he's a lot more chilled out now, but back then he was, you know, it was Michael Jackson on one line and Federal Reserve on the other line. I can't imagine. You know, he couldn't really relate to the young folk singer, even though that's how he started his career, was signing the young folk singer. Yeah. One thing I did was he would always say, oh, I got all this other stuff. So I'm like, okay, I called him, can I come over and hear all this other stuff? Because I'm actually really interested. So I do. I go to his house in Mount Washington, now a very trendy neighborhood. I mean, Beck single-handedly made the east side of L.A. cooler, I believe. Uh, <laughs> So I go over to his house and he's playing me all this stuff. It's amazing. It's deep. It's, you know, the thing about Peck is, especially at that age, he had a very deep speaking voice, very unusual. Didn't yeah. really, I, I was trying to trace his accent, but he didn't really have an accent. So at a certain point, I'm like, I think the only style I haven't heard represented here is techno. And he's like, yeah, I got a few of those. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing was, so you had the Bongo guys and Margaret Middleman, who was his publisher at BMG who happens to be married to Rob Schnaff, one of the bongo guys who I've been fortunate enough to work with on and off ever since. Uh, really, really great producer, a great guy. So I get Beck, Rob, Tom, Rothrock, the other bongo guy, and Margaret to come to my office. And I'm like, and I said, listen, I just don't know why you aren't ready to sign with us. So let's talk about why you aren't ready to sign with us. Like, ask me anything about anything. You want to talk about David Geffen suing Neil Young? Because that excluded us from signing REM when they Why'd did you, Why suit. was he not ready? Well, he told you he wasn't ready. No, it was more like it wasn't happening. So like and there was no manager. His attorney was Brian McPherson, who's a great guy who actually Dalton works with on a bunch of stuff. And I'm still in touch with. But it's, it's hard to explain. Like, it's almost like this relationship. Like, hey, why haven't we kissed yet or something? Or like, yeah, what? well, it was. I don't, it, we, I don't know if that was that makes sense with me and you, Chuck. You it's been look, four don't years. Look to my approval. Yeah, but is it like that? that? Like, hey, there's something in, we're not talking right, about like, here. Yeah, like, exactly. Like. Let's take everything, let's put everything on the table, right. like anything that concerns you. And there wasn't much. And it didn't take long after that for it to happen. I'm probably leaving out a lot. I mean, one thing I will not leave out is the night I was at the Neil Young Pro Jam show at the sports arena and left before Neil Young played to go see Beck play at the Smell because that's what I had to do that night. But every story is different. Every situation is different. You know, it, it gets back to one thing I, I think about is that it's just such a short period of time on this earth. The fact that you were American history major and slash poli sci and you've had that interest is really interesting because it's like that's a big piece of our culture. He changed a neighborhood practically. Yeah. And you're that right. song, it was wow. culture changing. 
Yeah. Just to bring it a little bit forward, because this is pretty interesting. There's a really legendary night at South by Southwest when Beck and Johnny Cash played the same venue, which was Emo's. It wasn't actually a Johnny Cash Beck show, and that did eventually happen. It was really early on. It was the very beginning of his first tour. And I remember I was hanging out with him at the club, and this guy comes up to me. He's like, yo, man, I'm so happy for you, blah, blah, blah. And guy walks away, and Beck's like, that guy would not have given me the time of day if it weren't for Loser, and I think he owes me money. And so he literally <laughs> went from not really having a lot of friends to being on MTV all the time. And then all of a sudden, he's the voice of a generation. And I promise you that neither Beck nor Kurt Cobain wanted that title. And for any of us, it's like, oh, it must be nice. Well, it might not be nice if you really think about it and the, the fact that things that you might do that you might not think about or care about, including in music, are influencing human beings to make decisions. And it's, it's very daunting. It's and fascinating. I've always felt Beck was a very reluctant celebrity in that, you know, he's always just seemed awkward to me and just... He's just an artist. He's just an artist. I have a unique relationship with him. I'm really lucky that way, and uh, I never try to miss him. And it wasn't quite the last time I was in L.A. because I was there in January and February, but when I was there in January, I just happened to be there the night that Beck fronted Nirvana, and <laughs> which I guess had happened before. It was the most amazing night. Like It hmm. was just, wow. I don't know. Wow. I, I don't even know how to explain it, but wow. it was special. It was special because of things that we had experienced together. That's the part that is intangible and can't be replicated and anyway and have you seen the mission of Burma documentary not a photograph yes i have okay good yeah because that's have. we got clint coming in uh in a couple of weeks okay yeah, that's yeah. my homework i gotta watch that it's it's you know what it, it's i was in uh it's funny keep coming back to south by southwest but um one year i was there and it was being screened and roger was introducing it and i was going back and forth between the Burma documentary and the Michael Jackson documentary. And that really illustrates to me that it really was good. Like it really was, like it holds up as a piece of filmmaking. It, to me, it's the most, kind of the most, Mission to Burma returning and me managing them is kind of the most amazing music experience I ever had because it was, it took me right back to 1979, 1980 and things that were changing my life and people that were interesting to me that I was wondering about. And you know, again, all had to be done physically. What is your opinion on the state of Boston music, like on on the creativity, on the the diversity of it? Are you optimistic about it? Are you happy where things are? What what do you what do you think? I am. A lot of it is because of hip hop. Because yeah, I just exactly. Think, yeah. And you guys have had some of these great Boston hip hop artists on your podcast, and I think that's fantastic. Um, I do think that's where the energy is right now, and um, I will give Matt and the Record Co. a lot of credit. I'll never forget the first time I talked to him. I vetted him with a mutual friend of ours, and they're like, no, he's fine, because his, he's like, I want to rebuild the Boston music scene. <laughs> I'm like, you're crazy. <laughs> I'm not even sure it's there to be done. He, wa he wanted me to help him to, to be an advisor on the compilation that he made, right. and the, oh. the time commitment he was asking for was pretty insane. I remember that. And yeah. I'm like, honestly, Matt, I don't think there's that much great music going on here in total. That's what we need. Um, we, we're lucky. I'm involved with the Shad Syndicate, which is right. a, Mayor Walsh basically asked the for-profit arts community to help address a funding gap in after-school arts programs. So there's four of us, all with music business experience. Adam Klein's on there, right? Adam Klein, Amy Bennett, and yeah. Jeb Gatulius. Yep. And a lot of other people have been involved, and we last year gave $10,000, $20,000 grants to a bunch of great organizations. We expect to be back in action next year, and it's been great, and it's been really, we've had so much support, Don Law, Bowery, I can't name everyone who supported us, but those are two crucial ones that everybody knows. And that brings me a little closer to the active creative community, because I honestly, I didn't move back here to be about Boston music even though it's what originally inspired me. And yet, I don't know. When I think about 2001, at the time, it felt like, yeah, it's pretty good. It's not like it, the good old days, which I think we now know are just never going to happen again. <laughs> However, I will say, when it comes to rock music, Boston in 2001 was pretty amazing. And there's probably all kinds of incredible stuff going on right now that I'm not aware of. I'm not a deep like Boston Compass guy, necessarily. I'm not going to a lot of house shows and squats and that kind of thing. And I know there's a lot going on in that area and there's a lot of energy and even just what those guys have done with Brain Arts, building it on that model is incredible. Yeah. And because of Marty Walsh, because of Joyce Linehan in particular, everyone who's working in that realm has the attention of the city and that's really exciting. So I guess for me, what I'm seeing is, is everything you talk about. It is creative, it is positive, it is definitely diverse. 
I do this monthly radio show in Indy 617, and I do try to keep an eye on things here. But what I mostly find myself playing from Boston is hip-hop, and a lot of it is women hip-hop artists. Yep. Uh, we have some great ones. Uh, and they really seem to have a tight community, and they help each other out. And mm -hmm. I don't know. It's been really interesting to me. But, I mean, like, the Red Shades album is fantastic. That's Boston hip-hop. Yeah, but, we just talked to Brandy Blaze, and she was talking about yep, it. Yep, right. Uh, and, well, again, I love how they all... As hip-hop artists tend to do, collaborate yeah. around each other's songs, they support each other. Their social media is all very interconnected. Yeah. Uh, and so what's the rest of your, what are your plans the rest of the year? For me, the pandemic has been a lot, of, a lot of reading, a lot of really healthy behavior. I was part of a startup accelerator at GW that was an amazing experience. Cool. I'm actually involved in a startup. i got a lot of unforeseen things going on. For me, there's all kinds of conversation that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Hmm. And... To go back to things we were talking about before, one of the things I felt when the Doves album came out is that it's a good time for music that has substance by anyone's definition because people have more time. Right. And, you know, I feel strongly about the artists that I work for, and I feel like they're all deserving of everyone's time. And I think everyone has a little more time for them. And we'll see. There's, there's, I don't want to in any way minimize the devastating impact of what's happened this year. It's horrific and scary and so much death I mean I had this experience where two people who I really respected passed away within 24 hours hey. Adam Schlesinger and Hal Wilner um, I got to work with both of them not like super close personal relatives friends or anything like that but people that I knew fairly well and had been had been in the creative space with I guess most importantly in a deep way yeah and I thought at the time like this is what it's going to be like like it's going to be it's going to be and thank god I guess in my life it hasn't been but that's yeah. not to minimize anything so it feels weird to even speak about it positively but it's been amazingly positive and creative and uh, also really healthy for me. I, I've been doing Noom since June. And, oh, really? Yeah. I, st I started doing that and then I, I backed out, but it's working for you, huh? I'm finding a level of discipline that I swear I never had. That's great. Yeah, Good it's, for it's you. insane. So, yeah. Well, well, you there's always fantastic. silver linings in this and <laughs> it, I think it's okay to talk about, but you're right. It's balancing that. It, it's acknowledging the pain, but also, we, you know, we're human. I mean, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of positivity. Yeah. Well, let's hope for music, more positives. That's right. It's going to be great when it comes back. I mean, I don't know about the Roaring Twenties, as some people were talking about, but uh, maybe. Mark, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. My it was pleasure. Great. Thanks it was for great to me. finally do this. Really, really great to Looking forward to, to hanging out at another music festival with you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yesterday was a milestone birthday for me. So, uh, oh, happy birthday. Thank you. I was able to celebrate. Uh, happy properly. 40th. <laughs> thank you. That's awesome. Again, yeah. If I'd known, we would have brought you some cake. I had enough last night. Okay, good. I stopped at Ari Verdict on the way home. Happy and, birthday. Uh, yeah, thank you. Right. We would like to thank Mark for sitting with us. He's an awesome guy. You can check out all that he does at FenwayRecordings.com. Com. Go to AboveTheBasement.com where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen and subscribe to our podcast, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and look at all the nice pictures we post on Instagram. We are everywhere. From all of us at Above the Basement, thanks for listening. Wear a mask. Tell your friends. And remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.